Welcome to Bringing Truth to Life. My name is Henry Clay, and we hope you enjoy this series of messages on getting to know God better. Tonight, we're in our fifth class, and tonight we're going to open our Bibles to a very familiar passage in John chapter 1, verse 29. John chapter 1, verse 29, where John the Baptist sees Jesus and coins a phrase. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said to his disciples, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I grew up Episcopalian, and I think just about every Sunday we would say that prayer, um, and some of you have Episcopal ties or, or background, O Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. And you say that like three times. And I grew up, you know, you, you, a phrase that you hear a lot, you maybe don't even think about it that much. You just think that's just what you say and sounds perfectly good. But tonight we want to delve into this whole topic of His Lamb in our series on thinking about the ways of God and how that helps us to get to know God. For those that are... Uh, have come on board more recently. We looked at the prayer of Moses in Exodus 33 where he said, show me thy ways that I might know thee because we were talking about how difficult it is, how challenging it is to get to know an invisible God who we can't see or hear or touch. But we can get to know his ways as he's revealed himself in the scriptures through his words and through his acts. And there are certain things that keep coming up again and again all the way through the scriptures. And we've already looked at his revelation. We've looked at his salvation Last week we talked about his resurrection and how it comes this as a theme all the way through the scripture. But tonight it's so appropriate to talk about uh, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world as we approach this Easter time of Good Friday and then Easter Sunday. Now one of the things that, that strikes my attention as you look at this phrase of John, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, sometimes you need to put in other words to, to help you to see the words that are actually there. Look at what it doesn't say. It's interesting, he compares, he talks about Jesus in a figurative way uh, using the term of an animal. Now, if we put in other terms there, we would realize how strange it is. It doesn't say, behold, the horse of God, the cow of God. In fact, it almost sounds blasphemous, but he did use an animal term. Maybe some of them are thinking, well, that's, blasphemous. Uh, of course, they didn't know who Jesus was, but the frog of God, the horsefly of God, the, the and, and also when you think about the term lamb, that's not a full-grown animal. That's a, that's a small version of a sheep. Some people don't know that, but that, that a lamb is not its own species. It's a small version of a sheep, just like a puppy is, you know, or dog and and he didn't say, you know, behold, the puppy of God or the kitten, but the lamb. The lamb was a sacrificial animal. So for the Jews, it, it did mean something. It had, that phrase had roots that went way back, and that's what we want to kind of look at tonight. And interesting that he says the lamb of God, not the sheep of God, implying also smallness, weakness, defenselessness, and innocence. So let's begin to trace this as it goes through the scripture because this was the background that the Jews would have had when they heard that term, the Lamb of God. But in Genesis 22, if you'd like to turn there, Genesis chapter 22, 
That's the famous time where Abraham offers up his son Isaac on the altar according to God's instruction to him. Probably a pretty horrifying instruction. Uh, you know, he'd waited 25 years to have this little baby boy. And, by the, and he's around, we're not sure how old, but say he was old enough to carry the wood. So he wasn't two and in diapers. He was probably 10-ish or 12-ish or something like that. And so uh, God says, I want you to, to offer your only son up in a burnt, as a burnt offering on, on the mountain I will show you. Now, they, they, they think that that mountain was where Jerusalem is now, Mount Moriah, they think was Mount Zion. And as they're going up, Isaac says this. Uh, he says, we've got the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? He was no dummy. You know, he'd been to uh, services before. It'd be like it's Communion Sunday, and you see the, all the little cups up there, but there are no wafers. And, and the service has already started, and, and, you know, little John pokes Dad and says, Hey, Dad, where are the wafers? You know, this, this is communion. They've only got the wine up there. So also Isaac is noticing we, we're missing a key ingredient here. We've, we're, we're here. We got the wood. We got the thing to light the wood with. But uh, I guess my dad's just getting old. He forgot the lamb. He says, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Now, Abraham is thinking, well, God provided Isaac. Uh, and he, the Bible says that he, know, he knew, he believed in his heart that even if he had to go through with it, that God was capable of raising Isaac from the dead. But this is the first case in the scripture where we see the offering of a son as though he were a lamb. And one day the Father of heaven would offer his son as a lamb. Now, as we move through the first five books of the Bible, we notice that this comes up again, this idea of the lamb. It comes up in Exodus. If you want to look in Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, they've gone through the, or the nine plagues, and it's the night before the tenth plague, which will be the angel of death going through the land and smiting the firstborn of every household. And this is a very good picture because it wasn't enough to be saved that night or for your oldest son to be saved that night. It wasn't enough to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, no, any house that doesn't have the, the blood on the doorpost and the lintel, the oldest will die there because all have sinned. We're not saved because we have a certain family heritage or my dad was a real fine believer. Each one of us needs the blood of Christ on the doorposts of our heart. Now let's look at a detail here that maybe you haven't noticed before. It says in, uh, let's see, we're in beginning of chapter 12. He says, verse 3, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people that there are. We had a men's meeting. Well, there were 88 of us, and we finished off three lambs. But, I mean, you know, a lamb feeds a, a pretty good amount of people, and they didn't have the big lambs for us. We ordered two 60-pound lambs, and they didn't have them, so we got three 40-pounders. But just to say that uh, we got three smaller lambs, and it still fed 88 men and boys, so uh, you were going to have a lot to eat. And, and also, it wasn't the kind of thing, well, we'll get 
we'll go ahead and get a lamb for our family because we'll put it in the freezer, you know, and you eat lamb leftovers. Well, no, on the Passover, they, the, nothing could remain in the morning. They had to finish it off. So it's like going through the line at camp, summer camp, when they said the rule now at summer camp is you have to clean your plate. You have to eat everything that's on there. And you think a little bit more what you put on there because it's easier to go back for seconds than it is to get some of that stuff down when you realize it wasn't as good as it looked. So they knew they were going to have to eat the whole lamb, one lamb per household, or sometimes they would group up. And then it says, uh, you are to determine the amount of lamb meat. Okay, I already read that. Verse 5, the animals you choose must be year-old males without defects. So they were pretty good size. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Now, did you notice what day they were supposed to get the lamb? The 10th day. What day were they supposed to kill the lamb? 14th. How many of you uh, ever had a puppy when you were little? Or a kitten? Well, and you have seen the fascination that children have with uh, little animals. There's something about babies, whether it be human babies or animal babies, that just fascinates us. One time we heard the doorbell ring in Argentina, and we looked out and there wasn't anybody there, but I could see that somebody had placed something by our mailbox. So I go out, and it's a shoebox, and I look in, and there's this newborn baby kitten there. And I thought, oh, brother, you know. <laughs> Uh, but my, my kids didn't think that. They said, oh, great, you know. So we nursed this little guy back to health and really, really enjoyed him. So now you think about it. They didn't go to the old-timey meat market for this lamb. It was a live baby lamb. And they didn't just buy it that day and go ahead and kill it. They had it in the house and they probably didn't have a yard, so they'd bring the animals in at night just for safekeeping. So that little lamb lived with them for four days. Now, with a little bit of sanctified imagination, I mean, it may not have been this way, but I kind of picture it this way, that, of course, this is a family affair. They've gotten the lamb. The kids are saying, oh, isn't he so cute, you know? And by the second day, they've given him a name, you know? The three-year-old saying, hey, I want to call him Charlie. Okay, Charlie, you know? And then they come in. If you've ever had kids with little animals, they every half hour or so, they're coming in to tell you what they just did. Oh, what they just did now, they're licking themselves like this, you know, and now they're sniffing around, and oh, he just jumped up on the chair, and you're saying, right, yes, good, you know, you want me to look? Okay, I've looked at it. But they're fascinated. I mean, it's like some, uh, a novelty in their world, having little Charlie with them. And for a child, a day is an eternity. It's not as though four days just flies by. Days are long when you're children. And so fourth day comes, the kids maybe go off to school, they come back, you know, they smell something on the grill, great, you know. And then, then one of them asks, well, where's, where's Charlie? You know, we're ready to play. You know, how do you tell him? Charlie's on the grill. You know, what's the point here, I think, by having the lamb with them for four days? They, it made them realize this is not a piece of meat. This was a beloved friend. And that's why I believe also God did not come down as a 33-year-old Jesus to say, okay, you can put me on the cross. Now let's get down, let's get to the bottom line. It says the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And they knew his name. 
And he says, we have beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. They were with him long enough to be enchanted with him. And then to watch him be murdered was so much more real, so much more painful. This wasn't just paperwork. This wasn't just something that needed to be done, and, but a nameless, faceless person that God sent. No, we knew him. He lived with us. And they, probably some people arrived at Jerusalem not knowing what was going on. Songs have been written about this. You know, somebody came, we, want, we came to see Jesus, and they said, they just finished killing him. You're kidding. They lived with him for four days, and he became a member of their family. And then God said, now you need to end his life. And you think, God, couldn't you have found him? I mean, that, people don't even like going to hear about the persecuted church. And that's far away. It's people we don't know. I think, God, couldn't you have spared us something so gory, a, a religion that's so bloody? Why is it that way? I mean, maybe you've never thought about that, but uh, the altar in the temple was drenched with blood of those sacrificial animals. We don't like to see all of that stuff. I mean, we, we have the, the butcher and the Piggly Wiggly, you know, it's all behind closed doors. Uh, in Argentina, they drive up with a big truck. I always wanted to get this on video because I've just never seen it anywhere else in the world. And they open the back door of this refrigerator truck, and there are half cows hanging on meat hooks. Like back in those old mafia movies, you know, where they'd go in the, in the freezer, you know, and, and do, kill somebody back in there and hang them up. Well, anyway... Well, they, they would get a guy, one guy would get up and bring the hook forward, and another guy would stand down on the ground, put on a hood over his head so he wouldn't get it on his head, and they would drop this whole half a cow on him, and he would lug it into the, that local butcher store. And then he would spend the next hour and a half with clients coming and going, cutting up the different parts of it. But in America, we have that all behind kind of closed doors. I mean, have you ever seen a cow cut up into its parts? We have to use these drawings because we've never seen it. We just take it by faith. It was one time on a big animal. But I didn't have to know him, touch him, talk to him, anything. It's real impersonal. But for them, it was very up close and very personal. And I think one of the things that God is trying to get across to us is how awful sin is. When you have a terrible sickness, oftentimes it's a terrible treatment. It's the only thing that has hope of curing it. Now, if you just have a cold, you can just take cold medicine, and it won't do any good anyway. But if you have cancer, cold medicine's not going to help you. Yes, but that's much less drastic. Yes, but it's much less helpful. In fact, it won't do a thing for you. And once you realize, this is the sickness I have, and it's that serious, then you're open to talking about any remedy, no matter how serious it is, that has hope of saving you. And the, the curse that was over mankind is the soul that sins must die. And it was supposed to be our blood shed there, our life. We were the ones that were to be butchered under the wrath of God. And God was preparing a way all the way back in Genesis, all the way through the scripture, some other way. And the only way to maintain his justice while still manifesting his love was for someone else to die in our place. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we have that picture there in Exodus where they would kill the Passover lamb. Jesus is our Passover. Now we see two other times in the Old Testament, well, numerous other times, but a couple of other details from the Old Testament in terms of the lamb. See in Leviticus 
5 and 6, it says, When anyone is guilty in any of these ways, he must confess in what way he has sinned, and as a penalty for the sin he has committed, he must bring to the Lord a female lamb or goat from the flock as a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. So we see here that this was not simply a thing for, well, we're going to have a picnic, and so what should we have this Sunday? Well, how about lamb? Okay, we'll get a lamb. No, this, was, this was, had religious, spiritual significance. It says, when anyone is guilty in ways that it had just mentioned, the only way out is you have to get a lamb and it needs to be offered. Why? Because it is dying instead of you. Now, in the Old Testament, we, we know from the book of Hebrews, in the Old Testament, those sacrifices could never take away sin, but it covered it. Only in Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, could the sins be taken away. And people think, well, but were they forgiven in the Old Testament? Uh, an illustration I like, I have to talk to more brilliant, some brilliant theologians to see if I'm, if I'm on or off base. But a thought I like on this is as far as what effect that had for them in the Old Testament is sometimes when I go buy something, I don't have any money in my wallet, but I have a piece of plastic with a number on it and my name and a, you know, a little strip on the back. And uh, it doesn't matter what I've gotten. I hand them this little piece of plastic and write, scribble something on a piece of paper, and they give it to me as though I paid. I haven't paid. I just handed them plastic. Now, I'm going to eventually have to pay. And that's the point. The sacrifices in the Old Testament were like a credit card, a promise of future payment by the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Jesus was the payment not only for us, but also for them. But back then, they would just do that sin offering in obedience to God and by faith, and the Lord would cover their sins. Then in Numbers 28, 3 and 4, not only was it just for an individual who had sinned, it says, Say to them, This is the offering made by fire that you are to present to the Lord two lambs, a year old without defect, as a regular burnt offering each day. Prepare one lamb in the morning and the other at twilight. Every day in the temple, 365 days a year, every single year, in the morning, they would offer a lamb. And in the evening, they would offer another lamb. So this was a daily sacrifice. So when, when anybody talked about a lamb in Israel, a number of things would come to their mind. Sin offering, the daily sacrifice in the temple. They would think about Abraham. They would think about Passover. It, this wasn't just an animal. This had tremendous significance for them because, see, God was revealing his ways. He was showing them something. Now, they didn't understand it all. Uh, it's more by seeing who Jesus is and what he did that we, if we finally finish going click and say, oh, I get it. Jesus was going to be the Lamb of God. In the Old Testament, they didn't fully understand this. And yet there was a hint of it. Let's look in Isaiah 53, very well-known passage. You can look at it in your in your Bible, if you'd like. Isaiah 53, from which Handel in his work, The Messiah, from that he drew so much good material. But it says, I think, starting in verse 4, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. 
and by his wounds we are healed. Don't you see this idea of substitution there? Someone else suffered so that we wouldn't have to. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Now, to just said all we like what? Sheep, not dogs or frogs. All we like sheep have gone astray. And then it says, this person, they don't name him, but they said, this person that's coming also, not in those ways is like a sheep, not in the straying ways, but in the ways of being silent when it's about to be killed. That seems to be a characteristic of, of lambs. It says, like a lamb led to the slaughter as a sheep before shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And Jesus became like us. The word became flesh. And here it, it uses the figure of we were sheep, and it was going to take a, sh a sheep to save us. One like made like unto his brethren. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. So before that it's just an animal that's stricken. But now it's talking about there's going to be a person who will be stricken for our well-being. Verse 11, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. That speaks of the resurrection. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. So now let's move forward to the New Testament, talk a little bit about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. If you've ever studied, done an overview of the Gospels, you realize they're not done like normal biographies. Normal biography, maybe about 95% of it, is how they were born and grew up and all the things they did in their life. I've got this real thick biography of Stonewall Jackson. And it's just in about maybe 30 pages out of 1,000 that it recounts how he was wounded by friendly fire and uh, my great-grandfather attended him as uh, his surgeon, personal surgeon, and then he died. But it was a, it's a very short part of the book. But with the four Gospels, it's well over a third of most of the Gospels the accounts of that last week of Jesus' life. An inordinate amount of time. And, and we would have liked to have heard more stories about when he was two and five and eight and just kind of zooms over his childhood and all of a sudden he's 30 years old. And think, wow, that went by quickly. Mark doesn't even start his gospel until Jesus is getting baptized. No Christmas account or anything that we kind of would have liked, you know. But then when he gets into talking about that last week, there's so much dedicated to that time. Why? Because he was the Lamb of God. He was born to die for us. Did you know that the Hitler youth had a slogan? I was born to die for Germany. And many, most of them did, unfortunately. But Jesus was born to die for us, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now normally, all the way up until this point, all the way through the Old Testament, whenever they would take a lamb and go through that 
time of sacrifice, the only person there that didn't know what was going on was the lamb. The lamb just thought it was another day, you know, going, he's lived with his family four days, they're good friends now, they give him the food to eat and water, and they, you know, the kids play with him, and so it's the fourth day, he doesn't know what the fourth day is, you know, what are we going to do today? And, uh, well, dad's got a shiny thing in his hand, okay, well, maybe we're going to, maybe it's a toy, you know? And the lamb, until that last minute, has no idea what's going on. Everybody else does, but he doesn't. Isn't it interesting with the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world? He was the only one that did know what was going on. No one else knew. No one else knew that he was the Son of God and that this was God's perfect plan to take the sins of the world on him on the cross. Some people had bits and pieces, but in this case, only the Lamb knew, and yet he was willing to go through with it. I looked at that word Lamb in my concordance, in the New Testament, it appears 39 times. What struck me was, was that 30 of those 39 times, it's in the book of Revelation. And I think every time it's referring to Jesus. So we see how the Bible starts off just with innuendos here and a few little things here about the Lamb, but it builds to a crescendo so that by the last book of the Bible, there's, on the average, more than one reference to the Lamb per chapter in the book of Revelation. And I want us to look at the, where this comes up at the beginning of the book of Revelation because it's, I found it very meaningful to me. In Revelation chapter 5, now the beginning of Revelation, after his initial salutation, John delivers these messages, these letters to the different churches in Ephesus and Smyrna, all these areas of churches in Asia Minor. But it gets to the end of that, and in chapter 4, all of heaven opens up. I think that would be enough to make you faint, you know? I mean, just so amazing. All of a sudden, it says, uh, verse, chapter 4, verse 1, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. I sure hope that when you and I get there, the door is going to be standing open. Wouldn't that be bad? The door closed, and you knock, and they say, who are you? And I say, I'm, I'm Henry. I say, well, let us check. Hang on. What's your last name? Clay. Sorry. You know, oh, that would be a bad moment, wouldn't it? Do you know tonight that if you died, you would spend eternity with the Lord in heaven? Well, John looks, and before him was a door standing open, and then he hears a voice, the same voice he'd heard at the beginning of the book, speaking to me like a trumpet. That's on the loud side. Any of you have had children that learn in the drums or the trumpet, you know, you put them in the garage. Uh, it's loud. He says, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And so he shows him a number of the things, the four living creatures. There are different songs that go on. And in chapter 5, he says, verse 1, Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, some of you are much more courageous than others. 
Some of you, when you go camping, you don't have any trouble going to sleep at night. But others of you hear everything. You've heard, you've read these Reader's Digest stories of bears attacking campers and dragging them three miles in their sleeping bag before they finish them off. And so you're just more of a scared type of a person. Now, we don't know what kind of a person John was. He doesn't know if the lion has had breakfast yet and will want to eat before he opens the scroll. He just, it's just a lion. In Argentina, we went to a petting zoo where you could pet the lions. They would never allow that here in the United States. I found myself with my children in this cage patting a Bengal tiger. He was from here down to here. Now, they had a keeper there. I don't know what he would have done if the tiger had... We did finally get out. And, but he tells John, don't worry, there's a lion here. And you or I, or I would probably have jumped at that point. So he turns around and is looking for this lion. And even though he has the name of the lion, that's not how he looks. Because that's not his true nature. He says, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne and circled by the four living creatures. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. He has all authority. All power now has been granted unto him by the Father. But when we look at him in heaven, we won't see a lion. We will see a lamb standing as though slain. Where is he standing? Standing in the center of the throne. Now, at this point, let's, let's think about this a minute. When you think about what's in the center of the universe, what's at the hub, what's the essence? You know, we, we've moved in, with, uh, in Iraq, down from Kuwait, Basra, all the way up. Now we're in the center of Iraq, in the capital, and in the center of the capital. And, and you think, well, that's, you know, if anything would show the essence of the universe or of a country or whatever, it's what's in the center. What's in the center of the universe? Now, I read a book by E. Stanley Jones that I found very interesting. He was a missionary in India. And he looked at this text and, and had the following uh, reflection on it. Because he'd worked with many different religions, Hindu, Buddhism, Confucius. And he says, uh, talks about what's in the center of the universe. He says, all religions have some kind of an answer. And there tend to be quite different answers. Let me just read you a little bit of a quote on this. He says, what is at the heart of the universe? What is the nature of the ultimate power? The answers have been various and different. Among the Greeks, it was Zeus with his thunderbolts. Spectacular power is at the heart of the throne. With Confucius, in the very center, it would have been genteel peace. With Buddha, desirelessness or undisturbed peace. Stoicism, detachment. Doesn't bother me. You can cut off my hand. It won't bother me. Judaism, almightiness. With Islam, irresponsible, autocratic, almightiness. With modern cults, peace of mind. Shavism, a cosmic dance. Scientism or, or science, the cult of science, if you want to view that as a worldview, dependable law. Semi-Christian modernized cults, goodness and love. But with Christianity, what do we see when the door of heaven is opened and we look at what's What's in the center of the universe? Heaven. What's in the center of heaven? A throne. What's in the center of the throne? A lamb standing as though slain. A lamb is at the heart of the throne. Self-giving, redeeming, sacrificial love is what is at the center of power of the universe. That is the most startling thing ever announced about our universe. 
and the most important. If sacrificial love is at the heart of the throne, then sacrificial love must be at the heart of my motives, my very life, at the center of me. Isn't that good? The lamb that is at the center of the throne. Sacrificial love. This reveals to us so much about who God is and how he has made this universe. Now, uh, a story that I think is a good illustration of this is I found in a book by Michael Card. And he has a song called Known by the Scars. I don't know if you ever noticed after Jesus rose from the dead that people had trouble recognizing him. A lot of times they would converse with him for quite a while and they didn't, they didn't as soon as they saw him, say, hey, Jesus. They might walk all the way to Emmaus chatting with him or talk to him like he was the gardener. How did they finally recognize him? His voice, in one case, he just said, uh, said the person's name. With, on the road to Emmaus, when was it that they recognized him? When he broke the bread and gave thanks. When he prayed. When he said the blessing. They said, only Jesus does it that way. Uh, we don't know what it was that struck their attention. But in heaven, how can you tell which one is Jesus? You've never seen his face. You've seen people guess what he looks like, and so you're thinking, well, I hope he kind of looks like that. Because have you ever picked somebody up at the airport and you don't know what they look like? And you just, you don't know what to go on. I mean, you may know gender and basic age, but there's, that doesn't tell you too much, you know. 500 people walking out, and half of them are the gender you're looking for. How will we know Jesus? Well, it says he is standing as a, 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 a lamb, as though slain. He will have his scars. Do you realize Jesus is the only one that's going to have scars in heaven? He will have healed all of us. By his wounds we are healed. We will have resurrected bodies. If you have a birthmark or a scar, you won't have it in heaven. The only one that will still have scars in heaven will be the Lamb of God. Why? You say, but Lord, you'd look a whole lot better without those awful scars there. He says, dear child, that's my glory. I'll keep the scars. And there's a story told about a, a man that visited Billy Graham when he was in Amsterdam for that conference for itinerant evangelists. Let me just share this with you. I found this very touching. Joseph is a tall, slender man like most Maasai warriors. His face bears the ritual scars every young man receives after killing his first lion with only a spear and shield. But the scars on his face and his ordeal with the lion are not what make Joseph special. He had made the long journey from Africa to Amsterdam for this conference, hoping for the chance to meet Billy Graham to share his story. The story began when Joseph was walking along one of those hot, dusty African roads, met someone who shared the good news of Jesus Christ with him. Then and there, he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. The power of the Spirit began transforming his life. He was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was return to his own village and share the good news with the members of his local tribe. Joseph began going door to door telling everyone he met about the cross of Jesus and the salvation it offered, expecting to see their faces light up the way his had. To his amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, they became hostile. The men of the village seized him, holding him to the ground while the women began to beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush. Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a water hole and there, after two days of passing in and out of consciousness, found he had the strength to get up. He still wondered about the hostile re reception he had received from the people he had known 
all his life. He decided he must have left something out or told the story of Jesus wrong. After rehearsing the message he had heard, he had first heard, he decided to go back to the village and share his faith again. Joseph limped back into the circle of huts and began again to proclaim the good news about Jesus. He died for you so that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God, he pleaded. Once again he was grabbed by the men of the village in hell while the women beat him a second time, opening up wounds that had only just begun to heal. Once more they dragged him unconscious from the village and left him to die. To have survived the first beating was truly remarkable. To live through the second was a miracle. Again, days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, bruised and scarred and yet determined to go back. For the third time he came to the small village. This time he found everyone waiting for him. They attacked him before he even had a chance to open his mouth. As they began to flog him for the third time and probably the last, he began again to speak to them of Jesus Christ the Lord who had the power to forgive sin and give them new life. The last thing he remembered before he passed out was seeing the women who were beating him begin to cry. This time he awoke in his own bed, not in, not in the wilderness. The very ones who had so severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health. The entire village had come to Christ. Joseph, after telling his story, lifted his colorful flowing African shirt to show my friend Dr. Graham the scars upon scars that covered his chest and back. After thanking them both for listening, he turned and walked away. Robert told me that all Dr. Graham could say was, I'm not fit to untie his shoes. And he wanted to meet me. One day we will meet the lamb. And we will recognize him. Not because of the little drawing you had as a child on your wall or in the Sunday school room. Long hair, short hair, beard. We will know him by the scars. And those scars to him are precious because that's why you can go to heaven. It says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. In closing, let's think about a few applications. As we approach just within the next 10 days, we will, there'll be Holy Week, Good Friday, when we remember the crucifixion of Christ. These passages we've talked about tonight, just to spend time worshiping Him. Come to the, some of the services, maybe some time on your own. This isn't just a time to eat and drink and take some time off. He is wonderful. He is to be adored. He is to be imitated. We should worship Him. Second, to know His heart and trust Him. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And there have been times when the Lord in His sovereignty has allowed some very sad things in your life. And you have wondered, Lord, it doesn't look like to me you care. And He would say to you, if you could see Him, He would say, put your finger in the wound. Put your, reach your hand in my side. I do love you, but you must learn to trust me. You must learn to trust me. He is so trustworthy. The only one we can 100% trust in forever. And we honor him by trusting him. Third, commit to being his lamb. Innocent, available, trusting, simple. We get mighty complicated, don't we? We've heard so much and we're educated to the limits of our intelligence maybe. 
and we hear things and we've maybe perfected our skepticism. We say, well, but I don't know. And there, you know, there's all these doubts that float through our mind. And I think he, one of the things he says to us through this principle of, of the lamb, he says, won't you just be my little lamb? Don't complicate everything so much. Come to me. Trust me. I want to make you once again innocent. You're not born innocent. You don't live innocent. But he says, you come to me. I have this only soap that will cleanse the stains on your soul. And I'll make you like fresh driven snow. And fourth, we remember what Jesus said to Peter after Peter had failed so miserably and thought it was all over. And Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter says, well, you know, Lord. And Jesus at that point didn't say, well, I want you to build a building that we can call a church then. I want you to make a yearly pilgrimage to the shrine at Golgotha. He didn't say, I want you to write the Bible or even pray, although those are all very good things. He said, take care of my lambs. And that's an interesting thing. As we become his lamb and his sheep, he turns over to us also the tending of the newer lambs. And he, as he also didn't live unto himself, he says, please don't live unto yourself. Don't conceive of your life as just taking care of you and those few people around you. You are following the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that left the comfort of heaven to come down here and make a difference among his enemies, among people that weren't part of his family. And he calls us also to reach out with the same kind of self-sacrificial love that's at the center of the universe, the Lamb who is at the center of the throne, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is known by the scars. And I invite you to worship him this Easter time. Let's pray. Someday the door of heaven will open. Someday our eyes will see. Lord, make it even more real to us day by day here, real through the eyes of faith and through the testimony in our hearts, the witness of the Holy Spirit. He is real. He is here. He is coming. I am his and he is mine. We worship you tonight. We admire you. And we pray for the grace to imitate you. And by our imitation of you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to bring you honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us on Bringing Truth to Life. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast.